0: Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald, and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Owing the Why, we are joined by Tanya Tetlow, the 33rd president of Fordham University, who shares her thoughts about leadership, innovation, and change.
1: Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Twice Over Podcast. We often joke that this is a very special episode, but in fact, this is a very special episode of the Twice Over Podcast. Steve and I are thrilled to be joined in the studio of the Light Center by the 33rd president of Fordham University, Tanya Tetlow. President Tetlow, thank you so much for joining
2: us. I'm so glad to be here.
1: We wanted to share with you and with any listeners who haven't been following along in the past three years a little bit of the history of the Twice Over podcast. So we started this in the spring of 2020 when we were in COVID lockdown to give voice to some of the faculty who quickly found ways to teach effectively and innovatively on Zoom. And we were having these kind of very nervous, anxious town halls where a lot of people were asking the same stressed out question over and over again, and it didn't seem like a very effective use of our time. And instead, what if we had a podcast where we interviewed faculty members who were doing things that were working and shared that out so people could listen on their own time and hear something that might resonate with them and might work in their classroom. So that's how the Twice Over podcast got its start. What a great
2: idea.
0: Although it began as a project to build community among the faculty, that work expanded to encompass people from facilities, students, a variety of constituencies of the university were represented to share their experiences during the pandemic and how they were really working behind the scenes to keep everything afloat during that period.
1: Early on, we interviewed the Chief Diversity Officer, Jeff Eng, who's Head of Counseling and Psychological Services, to talk about the special challenges and what counseling was doing to meet those challenges. So it's become a very holistic picture of the Fordham community.
2: We're all starting to park a lot of these memories in denial in that dark room where my own Katrina memories live. And I think we forget how heroic an effort it really was and Mm -hmm. how extraordinary people were.
1: I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you came to make um, higher education administration the focus of your career. You've had so many different careers. And I'm really curious why this is where you're focusing your expertise now. You're an attorney. You've worked with domestic violence survivors. You've been an advocate. You've been a teacher. Now you're doing. You're administering a major university in the city of New York. Why does that feel like the challenge that's right for you right now?
2: Well, it was definitely never the plan. I remember being a student worker in college for Lindy Boggs, who had just retired from Congress. But technically, I worked for the president's office at Tulane. And the university president then, Eamon Kelly, who's who's from New York, grew up with Father McShane actually, told me once, Tanya, don't ever be a university president. Ooh. It's a terrible job. <laughs> I said, why would I ever do that? Um, <laughs> that was like a prophecy. Exactly. But I also had forgotten that there were a few women administrators at Tulane then, about five of them who had major posts, who created a training mentoring effort with young female undergrads to try to show us what it meant to be in higher ed administration. we had readings and we would follow them. We got to actually shadow each of them in their jobs. I'd totally forgotten that, but it clearly planted some seeds that mattered. I got pulled in because I love teaching. I love writing. And I was, as a practicing lawyer, doing those things on the side, which is not normal or easy. <laughs> I worried, though whether academic life would be engaged enough with the world. That was always my worry because I care a lot about doing advocacy of being out engaged with people. And this job came open at Tulane Law School that was a tenure-track job running a law school clinic Um, representing domestic violence survivors. And it just ticked every box that I could make myself actually write and think, because it's hard to do that without someone really forcing you. And and when you do that, you realize you have a lot of inchoate thoughts, but until you actually have to prove them, (laughs) it really does a lot to hone your thinking about the world. But also to have real clients, to teach students real legal skills of how to practice law, and to get to do policy work on an issue I cared enormously about. So that's what pulled me in. I love solving problems. I love thinking about systems. Some of that is the lawyer in me. And so I did some things along the way, but was asked by the president then to be his chief of staff, which was a great role of looking at the whole operation, thinking about the role of a president in the abstract before it had to be me, which was really helpful getting to understand how much universities can and do matter. So that's what hooked me in. And then you add the Jesuit part of it when Loyola came calling. It is just these seeds so deeply planted in me, as you guys know, since birth. That really did feel like a serious calling of of what I was meant to be. Like all the Jesuits in my family secretly trained me for this (laughs) since birth without ever telling me. It just felt really right. I think about the, what
1: you said about the seeds of that mentoring program that you were participating in. And it seems to me, and I'd love to hear how you explain this to yourself, that it must be super important to you that you had that kind of 360-degree view of Tulane, of one institution. Right. And how does that help you think about what it means to be president here at Fordham?
2: It helps me understand how institutions that are big and unwieldy and protective of their core values, how they change, which is not an easy thing to do. So really being part of the faculty and having the then president tried to persuade me of things and how I reacted to it. And I remember those instincts a lot, right? When I'm yes, on the opposite yes. end, right? It's like, I used to think, oh, I don't know about this and be very cynical about it too, of how you go about helping people understand the long-term impetus of why universities have no choice but to change if we're going to survive and flourish without panicking people or making them feel like you're making up the crisis, right, of how you help them understand that it, it's not that the threat is tomorrow the way it was with COVID, but it is five and 10 and 15 years from now. And so if we don't change now, because it takes us so long, we're going to be in real trouble. But balancing that, that turning up the heat in appropriate ways without making people feel like you're exaggerating, or that you've made them feel worry more than they should or that you're throwing out all their cherished traditions right right i think a lot about the jesuit principle of indifference where you hang on to what matters and you let go of your attachment to what doesn't matter so telling the difference is hard but that notion that if we carry all of our baggage with us constantly if we decide that every single thing we do matters enormously if we are never willing to adjust to the times then we will fail. Having people navigate that, understanding that that change is hard, change is loss, even good change is hard. So I have learned Mm. to restrain myself a little bit because I love change, Um, but knowing that you don't do that lightly. And also understanding, I had this metaphor that occurred to me that you know how when you're driving the car, you don't get as car sick as when you're a passenger Mm. in the car? Well, that's what change is like, right? Change is fun for me because I'm the one instigating it. But for everyone else worried about what it will be or whether um, we won't value what matters most, it can be really scary.
1: If you're trying to make a big institutional change, you need to talk about it so much. Gently lead people into that change for so long that by the time you finally make the change, they're Mm. like, finally. Right. Enough with this. Enough with this. (laughs) I'm so tired of hearing about this big change.
2: Well, and you owe them the why. Right, yes. and, I, and I've seen people who jump too quickly to, oh, this is such an obvious conclusion and I'm just going to issue the order. But people need to understand why you're asking it of them and to feel good and comfortable about that.
0: That's been a the theme of our work in response to the pandemic, the different ways of teaching online through Zoom, synchronously, asynchronously struggling with the technology, trying to choose the appropriate tools, thinking about students who didn't have access to those tools or the Internet. Right. But the core of our conversations with faculty was that, well, you're, you're really doing a lot of the same things. The context is different, but many of the methods, your goals remain the same.
2: I am often terrified of technology, so I share that fear of just how daunting and annoying and hard it is to figure out systems that feel like they should be intuitive and are not. Um, So it took a lot of collective courage. And in some ways, that was exhausting. In other ways, it builds a muscle of of really sort of refusing to turn away from things just because we're afraid of them, that we're willing to grapple with them. And, And I think there's something really important about the fact that we are in the business of teaching And so to teach each other is so important. And that's the work that you've been doing with the people you've been interviewing is that if there's anyone who should understand how to spread information, how to help people understand, it's us. So how do we model our own pedagogy with each other?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would take calls and emails and Zooms with faculty who are this deep expertise and decades of experience and were so almost in despair that they could not communicate this to their students remotely. Right. Right. And I think, really, we try to operate from a place of empathy, yes. right? It's not judgment, right? No, I no, mean, no.
2: We all right? feel you're, this way. You're
0: running next to a moving train. Right. The minute you slow down, you're behind, and it happens to all of us. How do you reassure people that you're still valuable, that we need you in this in this new reality we're attempting to build? We can't do it without you. We need that expertise.
2: I think you say that over and over again, but it's also that faculty understood that when they had this moment of being separated from students at the moment the students needed us most. The students were going through incredible pain and disruption and isolation at a moment which in their development came at a a really tough time, right? It's one thing for us to lose a couple years of our middle age. And to, you know, I I don't mean to make light of what we went through because it was profound as well. But for them at this moment, when they're trying to navigate relationships and human engagement and encounters, they're already behind the eight ball because of technology and social media and how much stranger their childhoods have been compared to ours. And that they then have this enforced isolation was really brutal. And so for faculty to know at that moment, that it matters. And I had a couple of incredible moments of grace at Loyola. One was my predecessor, Father Jim Carter, who was president of Loyola in the 1980s. He is now 93 years old. He was still teaching physics. When COVID hit, and I ran into him, and he was all excited. He'd gone out and gotten himself a light and a better camera so that he could teach online. This was March of twenty. He was ready to go. So I told the rest of the faculty, if he can do it, (laughs) we can do it. If he's not afraid, then we have to. That's great. You've got a
1: non-engineerian going to Walmart and getting a ring light. Seriously. I wonder now, as we're starting to see research coming out about learning loss in the past two years, what people have suffered, and we're seeing it anecdotally here at Fordham. What is it the university's responsibility for thinking about how to educate people in light of the learning loss that students who are coming through are going to suffer? We're going to be seeing an experiment for the next 18 years. You know, what turns out to be the two years you missed? Mm-hmm. That are the most catastrophic.
2: Yeah, and and if it hit you when you were four, that may actually be a far greater ticking time bomb than what we're seeing now. Um, I've been obsessed with this point, and I don't have the answers. Um, I think for us and where we are in the marketplace of higher ed, what we're seeing is more of you know a, a sort of temporary late in in high school, loss of certain educational fronts, particularly in math, where we just have to remedially catch up our students, but more a loss of executive functioning, of social emotional skills, of the ability to make an appointment and get there. You know, So we're thinking through things like the app that's being piloted with first year students that will be spread to others of how to make it as easy as possible for students to navigate our systems without wandering all across campus and being told to come back another time, right, that we we really try to engage them in resources quickly, because that will help them function better, right, it'll catch them up. Mm. But across higher ed, this is hitting the community colleges in a brutal way. And it's hitting the percentage of Americans going to college in a dramatic downturn. That's like the GI Bill in reverse. And so I'm literally writing right now an attempted op-ed on raising the red flag and reminding people of how crucial this is. If you need it in the language of self-interest to our global economic competitiveness, to our national security preparedness, right? This should be our Sputnik moment where we wake up that other countries will pull ahead of us. But more to the point for me is it's wiped out decades of closing the, the educational opportunity gap. Yes, When we look at math and reading scores by race and economic background, they have gone backwards 20, 30 years. And so that is just devastating in so many ways. So I think we have to do our best in higher ed to make up for that. But it's coming at a moment when the Supreme court may ban us from thinking about race. And so (laughs) just to add insult to injury, it's going to be really tricky. I have this idea that I want to write in the op ed and see if I can get any traction that that this might be the moment for a national service corps that is sent to do high dose tutoring in schools. That that could be our kind of emergency reaction is to take young people and maybe make that what gets them serious college loan forgiveness if they're willing to do this, that we have a cohort experience for them, which would help us at a moment of increasing chasms in society of people having this common experience that would help them, but that we take as an emergency the need to go tutor third graders.
1: Well, and that positive cohort experience of community is what adolescents missed, yes, right? I love that idea because it's a win-win, right? The third graders would get up to reading level, but the 20-year-olds or the 22-year-olds would have the experience of not just making friends, but navigating
2: friendship. Yes, and doing something important and full of purpose and doing it with people who come from very different backgrounds than you. You know, in the way that the military does an Mm. extraordinary job of creating community and engaging with difference, that we could have that service component.
0: Anne and I have been thinking about innovation, we noticed in a few of your talks that you've mentioned this. um, And we've been struggling to determine like what's the difference between innovation and creativity, what does innovation mean? You use the word change. So I know all of these words are really similar, but how does innovation, as we sit here in this light center with all of this technology, How does that figure into what you're thinking about when you think about how the university could be different?
2: It's a mix of the great big idea, the direction in which we all head, but also lots of little ones. And that's part of what I wanted to activate across campus is the kind of innovation that leads people to solve a problem in a different way, to think about the world a little bit differently. And so creativity very much helps in that. But creativity alone, I'm, I'm the master of brainstorming and ideating all over everybody. That doesn't necessarily lead to the innovation that will carry it through, that's pragmatic, that where you find the one of your thousand ideas that actually is brilliant. I love hearing the stories of the people in facilities who've been quietly reducing the carbon footprint of this campus by a remarkable amount. They've built uh, massive solar fields, that they have been changing out LED lighting, that they've just been willing to innovate, to think ahead to say, "Okay, well, we can replace these light bulbs with the same kind, or we can think about the payback period of putting in the more efficient lighting would be a few years, so let's just go ahead and do that and make that investment. IT, similar sorts of willingness to think really creatively about how we fix systems, how we take the unwieldy process that has seven paper forms and triplicate and put it all online, bless them, right? You know, these are the people we need. You know, for me, I think part of my job is to empower people with the idea that they have permission to do that. And part of that is the message that failure will not be punished, right? That if you carefully think out the willingness to take a risk, to try something new, and then it doesn't work, right? The The quality of that decision is not measured by the luck of whether it worked or not, right? You know, we look at it in the context of what we know and whether it was a smart decision, but that it's okay to try things and fail, because if that's not okay, we will never try new things. And making sure that people understand that, and that culture is infused throughout.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of failure in what you do anyway. So fail at something you really deeply believe in, right? Right,
2: right. You know, the difference between failing at something you've done 100 times and just got sloppy, versus taking a calculated risk and trying something new. And that's what we really need. And we need it at every level. We need everyone in their work and what they are doing to think constantly, could I do this a different, better way? And and partly because that's also what makes life fun. That's what makes our jobs engaging and interesting. And it's the difference between a professor who teaches the same yellowed lecture notes for 50 years versus someone constantly thinking about their field and their discipline and what they're teaching, but also the methods of pedagogy, right, and it's just so engaging and interesting to constantly be um, looking at your syllabus of thinking about a different, clever way to get through to the students, and it, it makes you more happy too, right? <laughs> that you right. you have that joy. There, uh, joy is exactly the word, right? And I love that phrase you used, failure
1: will not be punished, because it's so scary. It can be so scary to try something new. Yes. But if you're thinking about it in the the boundaries that you're describing, right, where you're like, I understand my purpose, I understand my goal. I'm going to try it a different way for this reason. Maybe I can do it faster. Maybe I can do it with more equity. Maybe I can do it and bring along the students who are having trouble grasping the concept. Maybe I can do it and save some money, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there are lots of different reasons why we might want to change, but if you know what that is and you try something, that in itself is a worthwhile enterprise, and then we figure out what we learn from it, and then we go from there.
2: Right. I mean, just trying some new technique in the classroom is scary. The Mm -hmm. students will look at you in this blank Ferris Bueller moment and <laughs> you think oh well that didn't work but it's worth it because sometimes when you have those moments where you see that they got it and they're excited and you got them to care about the thing you love most in the world that just yeah, yeah that's it's like there everything. are no classes
0: that just went okay Right. It was either like the greatest thing ever or what did I do yeah. to my life? Why am I doing it? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know?
2: But they they admire the effort. Honestly, if they can see you're trying, even if your jokes fall mm-hmm. flat or your new technique doesn't work, that you know well, they get it.
0: You know, it's it's funny in our, our work when our work took off really exponentially during the pandemic, we started a lot of the conversations around tools. Mm-hmm. Right? Zoom. How do you put them in breakout groups? How do you share your screen? How do I pull my students? All, all of these technological fixes, which are really valuable to people. Yes. But now our work really looks at methodology, mm-hmm. right? Not how do you do it, but why? Like, why would I do this? What, what are my goals? And it took the provocation of being forced to teach remotely to, to have a, a large percentage of the teaching population really begin to interrogate their practices Right. I can't do this anymore on Zoom and which leads you to the question, why did I do that before? what, what was or what's another way to do this?
2: Yeah, the polls is a great example. Mm-hmm. There's so much research on the fact of kind of quizzing students, making them wake up, tell having them process and tell you what they think that that just locks in learning in a particular way. And it, it got so fun and easy to do it on Zoom, but how do we do it more in the room? You know, K through twelve is a lot better about thinking about pedagogy than higher ed is, just across the board. And coming from uh, law teaching, we're we're all about the Socratic method, right? <laughs> Socrates had it right. We're just stuck there. It is embarrassing, I think, sometimes to think about how little we try to ask ourselves the question of whether what we're doing works, right? It's like we want to throw our students on a bell curve and see where they land, and that's on them, and it's a way to differentiate as if they they can't figure out how to deal with passive listening as a method of learning, that's their problem. But that's not who we're trying to be. And if the goal is, honestly, to get every student on board, I had another great moment at Loyola where a professor who was a longtime producer of 60 Minutes, and he went back to New Orleans to try to retire, but the Loyola journalism program sucked him (laughs) into teaching adjunct. And he said he was bragging to his colleagues on the faculty about his brightest students. And they said, but how are your were students doing because that's how we measure you around here.
1: Kind of a light bulb moment, right? It is a
2: light bulb moment and it was very true of the faculty of Loyola in ways that just blew me away, is they wanted to lose no one. And and that was the goal is how do you get everybody on board and across the finish line and to treat that as such a glorious thing to have the privilege to get to do. So one of the things we've been talking about when we talk about innovation
1: has, is exactly related to this, right? Is that how do we get people to think about innovation as being the innovation is our most important priority is making sure that the student who feels the least belonging on campus comes to feel like Fordham is my home. Thinking about giving that the name of innovation rather than the name of some kind of diversity initiative right, that, right. Uh, that you might treat as a, a burden and add on something that, uh, that, I mean, I think faculty have been very, very responsive to programs out of the chief diversity officer's office, like mm-hmm. the track grant program, the teaching race across the curriculum program that invites faculty to think about teaching race in new ways. But how do we make people think about innovation as importantly, including racial minorities, underrepresented people, including students who may have the least educational access, the least preparation?
2: Part of it is just asking those questions, is stopping in the drumbeat of our day-to-day work and faculty meetings and endless committee meetings to... Ask important questions and and not just go through a checklist. And so right now, as the undergraduate faculty are thinking through the core curriculum, that's a moment to really say, What are the outcomes we're trying to produce? What are the core values and skills and disciplines that we want our students to know, and not just assume that that which we did 75 years ago is necessarily still right, not for the sake of change, because it might still be right, right? There's something really profound about the core skills that we've always taught that matter. But to ask the what are we doing and why questions and to have that be a bigger part of our lives is that we really sort of challenge ourselves in that way. And universities are good and bad at that, right? We tend to resist change, because we don't want to have outside influence, outside interference, we want to hang on to our core values. And so for a 1000 years, we've been very good at resisting change. But when that comes at a cost of really thinking about who we're trying to be and whether we're achieving it, and asking those questions constantly, not every couple of decades, right? So I do think um, part of my challenge on the academic side of the house will be, without knowing the answers, right, because this is not my world of expertise in any particular discipline, but are we thinking about major requirements and how often, right? I think at its best, and some fields are better at this than others, business education, which I have the least experience with, but they're pretty good at thinking about the quality of their pedagogy, of understanding that team-based learning is really important and finding ways to do it, of trying to make sure that what they're teaching matters and thinking about that every year, not just every 10 years, that we all do that. And and we do it in all of our worlds in the university.
0: You said something that, that really struck me during the new faculty orientation. When you were talking about the hoped-for changes in increasing the diversity of the student population. Mm -hmm. And you said your argument would be what we did for your families, we want to do for these families. That theme is emblematic of what you're saying, Mm -hmm. right? That the the core mission remains the same. Yes. Right? These are still our values.
2: And and it's that, right? I think part of how you push for change is to remind people of the core value. We're not changing for its own sake, that's anathema. We are trying to focus on what we care about and not get distracted by that, which is kind of a constant battle because we all get distracted by that. A lot of times the distractions seem like they're the source of fulfillment and they're not. What fulfills us is why we came here in the first place and the glory of what we get to do. And so if we focus on that, the other things we try to work on, do our best, make them matter, but that we don't lose sight of of why we're here in the first place, because nothing else will really pull at people's souls and hearts and, and make them understand that what we do here really, really does matter to the world.
1: You mentioned something about legal education. I want to draw you back there for a second. I'm just curious if you've seen, I was so surprised and kind of amused that my nephew, who's a 1L at Seattle U, has taking exactly the same courses that my father took as a 1L 60 years ago. Yes. So what are innovations in <laughs> legal education? Yeah. And then, yeah, so let's just start there. What are you seeing? Because right. we were giggling at the continuity, right? I mean, the Socratic method, it's always worked, right? Why mess with it? Is that still where we are at Fordham? or uh,
2: you know, I, I honestly haven't dug in enough at the law school to know or speak to that. But it, it, the ABA, which accredits law schools, right. is a force pushing for change in this regard. So they now, much more than they used to, really want to see that you're doing something better than talking at 90 students in a classroom and cold calling on them once in a while. One thing that Fordham Law School is very good at is having lots of clinics. And that's what I did was to run a clinic. And I had the experience both of teaching civil procedure in a classroom and in a clinic. And Teaching civil procedure is necessary, and you have to do it at the beginning because it's all the language, the vocabulary that helps you read every other kind of case. But it's like lecturing to someone on how to play the violin without ever letting them play it. It's really painfully hard because it's not that interesting in the abstract, right? It's like, here are the rules of monopoly. Oh, dear. (laughs) I will read them to you. So, but in the clinic, when literally people's lives were on the line, if you could figure out which motion to file... Boy, did my students learn procedure and understand how much it mattered and to realize how much of an advantage it was to be able to really know the rules of the game, right? Like for the people in your meetings who understand parliamentary procedure. Oh, yes. <laughs> Gold, right. And so experiential learning is the way to go in every field. The hard part is it's just very expensive. So I would teach 12 students in the clinic for an entire year. And that was my full time job. Or I could teach a hundred students in a classroom and and do multiples of those every year, and so that's what's really hard at a moment when law school education's you know more expensive when there's more competition on financial aid for students, right? It's just, it's coming at a hard moment. But I still found ways in a big class of 90 students to be creative. I really did find ways to to build an experiential learning, and I loved the experiment of that.
0: So I think what you're saying is sometimes innovations can be inefficient.
2: The trick is finding ways that we can afford, and by that I mean that our students can afford, right? So when we do this Work of figuring out the excellence our students deserve at a cost they can actually afford, which for us is driven less by the actual tuition advertised price than what we in fact charge them right after significant financial aid. That's what is tricky because clearly we could throw 10 more faculty and have every class be five students, and that might be pedagogically better, but that's not something the students can afford, right? So how do we get creative within that? And I loved having a big class of 50 students and finding ways to break them into small groups or to have them compete or to have them sometimes mark each other's work and learn from that in ways that I couldn't do as constantly with an enormous classic all of those creative ways I found really fun. And I do think they mattered.
1: Legal education is and the law is such fascinating forum for thinking about innovation and tradition, right? Yes. Because in your work as a lawyer, you had to think about using precedent to make arguments about racial and sexual discrimination that weren't imagined by the people who wrote those laws. So you're always thinking about, well, we can apply this law,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in this way, to protect women that maybe wasn't conceived of in the legislature that wrote the law.
2: Yeah, no, So you're how right. do you think about that? Well, yeah, legal reasoning is a great method of incremental change, right? Yes. Because what tends to not work is to just say, we're going to throw out everything we've known and start over, right? Unless the legislature passes a new law, that argument's not available to you. So it really is about building on, weaving into what exists now, the new thing that we're trying to get at.
1: How do you think about innovation in the Jesuit context, right? Jesuit education is all about innovation, but it's also a very traditional way of educating.
2: I think the Jesuits represent innovation in so many ways, just in their ability to build institutions, in the 1600s, they were at three a year, right, of throwing up colleges and universities. It's a pretty stunning rate. It is stunning. It would be stunning now, much less then. And so by the 1700s, they had more than 700 universities on five continents. Wrap your mind around that. And they did it without having any access to vast wealth, right? They did it by just being clever, And willing to take risks, right? A lot of our schools sort of hang on by a thread, but we keep going year after year after year. And there's something really humbling about being at these gatherings that happen every few years of all the international schools where we at Fordham think we have problems. And then you talk to people, you know, in India where the government's just starting to take part of their land or in Nicaragua where the army shows up sometimes with weapons. And you realize with humility um, of how easy we have it and how much just incredible courage and scrappiness and ingenuity it takes to run these institutions. And so part of our job here is to hang on to that, which is our kind of corporate culture, to put it in business terms, of, of really being willing to be clever and creative and to take risks in that way the Jesuits have always done and that has worked for them. And not because it's easy or it's some story of doing some startup tech company, but because of that holding on to mission and being really kind of clever about the rest. That's what works.
0: How do we make the argument in a culture that really is privileging, you know, technology and business and the corporate world as the, as the best path for, for a young person to give them a sense of stability in their future? As precarity in society increases, people seem to be less likely to be interested in pursuing degrees in the humanities.
2: On the undergraduate side, it's a really easy argument to make because employers tell us loud and clear that what is hardest for them to teach on the job are not technical skills. It is how to communicate, how to have emotional intelligence, which requires sort of the empathy built by reading a novel where you put yourself in someone else's shoes or you look at art or theater and engage with humanity writ large of the cultural competence it takes to function in a global economy. So we have all those self-interested arguments to make about how much... Easier it is to teach those skills in the context of humanities than in more technical applied sorts of courses. We have the broader brush need to train citizens, right, at this moment where we have all of these increasing threats to democracy, the fact that we don't know our history, that we don't know how our government is constructed, that we haven't thought writ large about how humanity organizes itself and, and across different nations and different contexts and different comparisons um, is really killing us right now, that we don't have that deeply rooted base in human knowledge and understanding. So all of those things. It's hard because we hang on to the core teachings of Jesuit institutions, which you just asked about, You know that have been around for almost 500 years. It is also true that our schools, because they've been so interested in opportunity and throwing the doors open more widely, have educated students for whom getting here is such a stretch where their families have handed over their life savings, where they've taken on debt. So we have to be very careful about sort of rolling our eyes at the questions about return on investment and will I be employed at the end of this? Because it's one thing to say that to a rich kid with like, you know, hang in there, it'll be fine. This is good for you. Versus a poor kid who's gambled everything on this experience. It, it is worth making the argument of why this will be not harmful, but in fact, helpful to your ability to get a job and support yourself and pay back these loans and to launch into the middle class. And so we we walk a fine line there of of sort of saying, "Oh, we know what's best for you versus, I think, really making the arguments that are readily available of why it matters. So the Supreme yeah.
1: Court's hearing a case on affirmative action in higher education this session. You've spoken about this, and I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how you're thinking about how you hope the decision comes down, what you anticipate, and what Fordham's response will be.
2: Well, I'm I'm not very hopeful at this moment, but we'll see. I do think there are two of the justices recently confirmed who were asking some tougher questions during the hearing, so who knows? There may be some middle ground yet available, but the worry is, is that in all of the ways that we try to evaluate students and all of the ways that we understand that it's not possible to line students up sequentially in how much they deserve to be here in some objective sense, right? And and the fact that during COVID, so many of us went test optional because we finally universally acknowledged that the testing was problematic, that it measured how much private tutoring you had to take the test more, than it really measured your objective ability. And we know that from our own retention data, where grades in high school matter more than those tests. The idea that in all of the review, we look at for students to find out how to create a diverse class, you know, how to have kids who play the violin well, or play football well, or brilliant at science, but can't write worth a heck, and all of the variety that we get here, of wanting all 50 states if we can have it, that we don't do that because we're biased against people who can't play the violin or can't do various things, Um, that we're really trying to create a cohort where the students will learn as much from each other as they do from us. A, that that's really important, and B, That when we constantly ask students, what have you overcome in life as the prime question that they all write about in their essays, we do that because that grit, that determination is really important to us and as a predictor of how well someone will do and what they may achieve in life and what we're trying to encourage. And the notion that of all the obstacles that we could be asking about, you know, family trauma or growing up poor or growing up on a farm or in isolation or any of those things, that the one thing that we're not allowed to consider is overcoming racism which we can quantifiably prove still has a huge impact on people's opportunities in life, that that's the one thing we're not allowed to consider I just find absurd and an incredible intrusion into our own academic freedom and admissions and our own religious freedom at, at uh, Catholic schools filed an amicus brief to the court making that argument. The military academies are really worried about this because they need to find talent, right? And to understand that talent is often demonstrated by what you've overcome to be there. The business community, a lot of corporations filed amicus briefs saying, you know, we need to find talent and you're about to put up massive blockers to that talent. So, and we know from hiring that you don't, there's no objective measure of whether someone deserves a job more than someone else. That's a long-winded answer, but I'm holding my breath and I'm very worried about it.
1: I'd love to think that we could find a way to persist in our commitment to diversity despite a Supreme Court that feels like it's, I'm anticipating it may be unfriendly to.
2: What we can do at Fordham is to. Um, recruit heavily as we do now in our backyard. We are allowed to do that. And because we are in a gloriously diverse community full of extraordinary kids, um, that will be one thing we're allowed to do. And the fact that we have such success helps drive more success, right? That this is a place you can come and have an incredible cohort of students already will help us maintain, but we'll see. So we're going to ask
1: you the question we always end with, which is to invite you to tell us about a favorite teacher in your life.
2: For me, it was Mr. Bowman in second grade. And as a good seven-year-old, I have no memory of his first name. And I went to a Catholic girls' school, showed up having newly moved back to New Orleans as a kid who was struggling socially because a lot of the girls in the class had a lot of money and I didn't because my parents are brilliant academics but not so good at teaching me basic social skills and so I was kind of one of the shunned students in the class and, and struggled mightily for that was pretty miserable and Mr. Bowman just had this way of encouraging me without calling out what was going on but just looking me in the eyes and seeing me and sort of making me feel like this too shall pass and I was meant for bigger and better things, and it would be okay. I am forever grateful to him for helping me get through and for teaching me to love reading, which is what he taught me.
1: Mr. That's Bowman. Mr. Mr. Bowman. Bowman. Thank yes. you, Mr. Bowman. Yes. That Bless was you. great. And sometimes those just little glances across the room, the little bit of eye contact, that's the, that's the thing you need to get you through that hard day. Pretty that's much. That's beautiful. Well, President Tetlow, it's really an honor. We're really, really happy that you came to talk with us today. Thank you for being our guest on the Twice Over podcast. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so
2: glad you're doing this. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much. Twice Over is now available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com Thanks so much for listening.